I'd like to tell you a story about a man, a drowning man. Imagine he is about 50 yards offshore, thrashing around the water in distress. A political liberal walks by, sees the man drowning, and throws him a hundred yards of rope and walks away, feeling like his job is done. A few minutes later, a conservative strolls up, sees the drowning man, and throws out 25 yards of rope, well short of the drowning man's needs, while exhorting the man to swim for it. He also walks away, happy that he encouraged self-sufficiency. Later, a libertarian stops by and patiently explains that while, yes, he does have a rope that he earned by dint of his own effort, for everyone's sake, he explains, it would be best if the drowning man acquired his own rope. Did he have anything he could, perhaps, trade for a rope? Throughout these encounters, a neoconservative has been watching thoughtfully from the beach. He pulls out his laptop and writes 800 well-chosen words indicting progressive waste, conservative folly, and libertarian heartlessness. Meanwhile, the man in the lake is still drowning. I love that anecdote. It's an equal opportunity offender. It's also a very helpful illustration of the challenges we face in reducing criminal recidivism. Much ink has been spilled, and much has been tried, yet very little has yielded strong results. Meanwhile, of the close to 600,000 Americans who will return from prison this year, almost two-thirds will be rearrested for new crimes within three years. On January 17th, AEI released an edited volume that showcases some of the best and most up-to-date research and analysis on the reentry challenge and potential solutions. The working group that produced this volume met over an 18-month period and looked deeply at the data and evaluations of recent federally funded reentry programs. Ten different authors developed essays on key areas of reentry policy in an effort to help move the conversation from a stagnant and despairing nothing works to an inquiry. What might work? Over the next few months, we will periodically be engaging on this show with these authors for conversations about their insights on reentry challenges, looking at topics ranging from what the evaluations tell us to how individuals learn to desist from criminal behavior to a new model for reentry preparation and support. In today's episode, my guest is Pam Lattimore, a Senior Director for Research Development at the Research Triangle Institute in the Division of Applied Justice Research. She has more than 35 years' experience evaluating criminal justice interventions and investigating the causes and correlates of criminal behavior. Before joining RTI, she worked for 10 years at the National Institute of Justice, including a stint as Director of Criminal Justice and Criminal Behavior Research and Evaluation. Pam Lattimore, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Oh, it's nice to be hardly working. I like that. <laughs> um, no, Brent, it's my pleasure to be here. We just wrapped up a session upstairs, actually, on prisoner reentry. You were principal panelist in that discussion. And I really wanted to spend a little more on time kind of unpacking your ideas and the paper that you wrote for us, which is part of a volume called Rethinking Reentry. For anybody who's listening, you can get that by going on the AEI website. You can read all of Pam's thinking and our other scholars by ordering that book or downloading it. When you joined the, the working group at our first session, I was so intrigued when you came in and started talking through what I detected was some, a little bit of frustration about the state of the data and practice around reentry. And for someone who's given so much of their life to this topic, I was, really, I was, I was just really taken with 
what you had to say. So I think a good place to start off this conversation is just to talk about this trope in reentry, which is that nothing works. And maybe walk us through the history of that idea, where it's true, where it's not so true. And then we'll talk a little bit about the specific research projects that you're engaged in. That sounds great. I was fortunate enough to sort of come into this field almost by accident at a time when sort of the prevailing thought in correctional programming was that nothing works. There had been an influential publication that was titled Nothing Works by Martinson and some of his colleagues in, in the mid-late 70s. In early the early 1980s, when I went to graduate school, I had the privilege of, of working with an economist who was a labor economist who had done some of the labor theoretic work in criminal justice and had worked with the North Carolina Department of Correction to develop what we would now call a reentry program. But this, of course, predated the whole consideration of reentry. But it was an inside the prison, outside the prison, sort of service-oriented approach, education, job training. It included Department of Correction. It included parole officers. It included the Employment Security Commission, employment officers. I forgot exactly what they're called, but the employment officers out in the community to sort of prepare these young offenders for work and with an idea that if they had legal work, legitimate work, that they would be less likely to recidivate. I had the privilege of working on that evaluation while I was finishing up my PhD, and it turned out to be the last randomized controlled trial, to some extent the last evaluation that was done on a corrections program for 10 years, partly as a result of it being overtaken by the nothing works. Right, right? and that nothing works is unfortunately really pithy. I mean, it's yeah. it has really stuck in yeah. people's heads in a way that until I read your piece or until we got a chance to meet, I didn't even know about I didn't know that that was a trope, yeah. right? But it's so it's worked its way into criminal justice policy and rhetoric. It's almost like this unexamined assumption. So, and it's a serious misrepresentation of the yeah. original scholarship. In that the main conclusion by Martinson and his colleagues who were doing this for the state of New York was that very little had been tried, and that what had been tried hadn't been implemented or hadn't been implemented very well. So the primary main takeaway from that work should have been nothing that, that has been attempted so far has worked, but nothing much has been attempted. Mm-hmm. And, and not attempted and, well. And not what little has been attempted wasn't attempted well. Like you say, it was clearly unfortunate that the takeaway came. Of course, this was in 1980. This is as crime was starting to escalate. So there were a lot of things that were going on. The war on crime started and then the war on drugs started. And all of that led to sort of a push for more carceral policies in the United States and an effort to crack down. I mean, is that when prison populations sort of took off? Right. We basically got a turn towards now that nothing worked and now that we're seeing crime rates skyrocketing what are we supposed to do about it? It's time to get tough on crime. And the way you get tough on crime is to arrest as many people as you can, convict as many people as you can, and put them in prison for as long as you can. And not to forget also, though, that during that time, the community supervised populations also skyrocketed through the 80s. So it wasn't just, oh, we're putting people in prison now rather than putting them on probation. It was, we're putting a whole lot more people in prison and we're putting a whole lot more people on probation. So, you know, there was a three to five fold increase in the various correctional populations over the course of, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And so from the public perspective, this is something that I 
I've seen on the conservative side of the ledger, from a public perspective, there was maybe another unfortunate coincidence that as we incarcerated more people, we did actually start to see the reductions in crime, but they weren't necessarily all related to incarceration. I think there was there's a kind of perception that the public got a pretty good deal out of incarceration in terms of reductions in crime. Yeah. I mean, an interesting way to think about that is I've thought about it from the opposite. And at one point years ago, I actually did sort of a graph that and one of it was a per capita incarceration rate and the other was a crime rate. And at some time, at some point they crossed. Mm. And it's like now we're incarcerating a whole lot more people than the crime rate. As the crime rate was coming down, the incarceration rate crossed over. Obviously, if you were to put an additional 500,000 people in prison, you would hope that that would have some kind of an impact on crime, right? Right. The question is really how much of a difference there was. And just to follow that thread to the end, I mean, I think that most of the research suggests that incarceration did have an impact right. on crime reduction, but it was about, what, 25% of the total reduction? Yeah, that's that's what I'm remembering from. Right. Yeah. And the rest of it was driven by demographics and... And, and, and other things that yeah. we don't even know what they are. Yeah, we don't know what they are. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I was out at the uh, American Criminological Society meeting. I attended a briefing where they were talking about the relationship between inflation, the inflation rate, and criminal activity. And it's like one of the best predictors, you know, like it tracks criminal activity, tracks inflation almost closer than any other. That's neither here nor there, but it is an extremely complex dynamic of crime and incarceration that we don't really understand that well. Yeah. So that's kind of the background on nothing works and our responses to nothing works. And then we put all these people in prison, two million now, right? That's about the prison population nationally? Yeah, 1.2 million. Oh, 1.2. And, 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 the, and the, the remainder is yeah. in, are in jails. Right, So right. it's about 2 million in jails and prisons. Yeah, yeah, jails and prisons. Okay. Most of the people in jail are pretrial, 65%. Right. So we incarcerated a lot. This has become an enormous burden in many different ways. It is clearly a financial burden on the state, a fiscal burden on state budgets. It's a drain on productivity. It's a drain in terms of the the downstream social effects of incarceration on not just the people who are incarcerated, but their families. What's it been, about 20, 25 years, people started to wake up to the fact that there are a lot of costs associated with this strategy. And then what happened? Well, you know, I mean, and I, I think that there was a focus on, and combined with that was the recognition that most of these people we were putting in prison, the vast, vast, vast majority of them were going to be released one day. Right. And so then what? And so that was sort of the birth of reentry, thinking about reentry programming. Jeremy Travis, who was the National Institute of Justice director at that time, I mean, was sort of one of the leading thinkers on that, that, you know, we needed to think about developing the right kinds of services to hopefully allow people when they came, came out of prison to be able to set themselves on a path that would result in them not going back to prison. So then there was a really concerted effort to start trying to think about, you know, what kinds of services could be provided and and then a policy focus from the federal government in particular to start providing resources to state and local governments to implement programming. And that was Clinton administration. Is that right? The story that Christy told this morning about well, Janet Reno saying, what are we doing? That was Clinton, but some of this started towards the end, I think, of Bush, H.W. Bush. Ed Meese was actually very interested in mm. correctional program reform and, and research. So about that time, you know, 
there was a focus on that. And, and I got involved. I left NIJ and got involved in the evaluation of the Serious and Violent Offender Reentry Initiative, which was 2004. The legislation was probably passed in 2002, 2003, something like that, to fund, it was $100, million, $110 million to fund state and local governments to develop, mostly state governments, to develop reentry programs for individuals who were incarcerated in prisons. The, that initial work was prisons or juvenile detention. And so you were one of the leaders in evaluating that effort. That's the Savory effort. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I was, okay. I was the co-PI on that project. And that's a very, really interesting story. So why don't you tell us what happened in the evaluation? To my knowledge, it's still the largest evaluation of its kind that's ever been done. There were 89 programs funded. 16 of them were eventually, after some evaluation work by us, were 16 of them, 16 programs, 12 adult and four juvenile programs were selected for evaluation. The adult programs were in states that represented about a quarter of all prisoners in the United States. So these weren't randomly selected, but they were certainly representative of, you know, I think of the people who are in prison. It was a very extensive effort to collect interview data from roughly. Well, first, what, what were the services that were? Oh, provided? that's right. That's uh, right. The service, right? Yeah. That's yeah. That's a good point. Reentry really means, or it's come to mean, programming that spans the period of incarceration, presumably return to the community, generally on community supervision of some sort, and then post supervision and. The idea was based on a needs assessment that a reentry plan would be developed for each individual. This plan would address needs that had been identified. The needs of this population are huge by and large. Low education, little to no job skills. And now it's at least as true as it was when this study was done in the early 2000s. Serious mental health issues for among a lot of people, particularly the women, and drug abuse problems that were very serious. Again, at least as serious, if not more so, for the women who were incarcerated. So behavioral health issues, low job skills, you know, life skills are issues, anger management issues. So a whole All which would presumably not have been helped by being incarcerated. None of that would have been helped by being incarcerated. It's interesting. I mean, this is a complete and total side note, but at one point I was working on a proposal, didn't get funded, but I was working on a proposal with the Florida Department of Correction. This was years ago now. I think it was either two-thirds to three-quarters of the women who were incarcerated in Florida were on antidepressant meds. And, yeah, I don't know, the Savory women that were included in our study, 60 or so percent of them indicated at the time they were released from prison that they needed mental health treatment, substance abuse and mental health treatment. Which is remarkable because people don't always know when they need mental health. That's right. That's right. And and these, you know, and those both of those percentages were much higher than for the men, I think. The women probably do have more issues with depression. You know, they're separated from their children, blah, blah, blah. They have more issues on the mental health side, perhaps, than the men do. But I think, in my cynical opinion, the women were just more willing to admit that they had drug problems than the men were. So address these needs, develop a reentry plan, give people a case manager, coordinate with services out in the community at release. These projects were implemented by local community-based organizations and justice? They were implemented by state Correctional agencies. Okay. So the grantees were state departments of correction or state juvenile justice agencies. So the Second Chance Act, which is a, a, a newer iteration of reentry programming that's available for states, includes a big jail component. But the, the original Savory Serious and Violent Offender Reentry Initiative focus was strictly on prisons and the juvenile equivalent of prisons. And, and it was a three-year initiative? 
the grants for the programs were three years. Okay. Uh, and yeah. those of you who are familiar with how these work, I think some of the sites got extensions, no cost extensions, but it right. was it was envisioned as a three year stand it up and and, and provide services it. and operate yeah. it. Our grant, we ended up with about a five year, and then we did a long term follow up. So we were in the field for a lot longer than the grants themselves yeah. were. So this is the evaluation grant. The, the evaluation grant. Yeah. Okay. So you you were collecting data on a whole host of measures, outcome measures, trying to see who got what and how it affected them. What did you find? That's right. So we used administrative criminal justice data. We got arrest data, reincarceration data, and then we did interviews 30 days prior to release. So that was our baseline. It was basically how were they doing about the time they got out, and then three, nine, and 15 months post-release. We had decent follow-up response rates. We made the statistical corrections that were indicated, which really weren't that serious. You know, we basically found very little difference in recidivism outcomes. We found some some positive findings for unemployment measures, but the recidivism follow-up in the initial study was about two years. Was that re-arrest or reincarceration? Re-arrest and reincarceration, and we actually had self-reported criminal behavior from okay. the from the interviews. And we found very few differences. We had adult men, adult women, and Juvenile boys were included in the, we had four juvenile science. So those were boys. We had to drop, exclude girls because I think after six months, we had like seven, which is a good thing, but we only had about seven. So we followed them. But based on all of these indicators, arrest, reincarceration, self-reported criminal activity across different kinds of domain areas. We found very few, very few differences. Very few positive findings. Positive findings. Some, you know, oftentimes, I mean, this, we can talk about that first study that I did, the vocational VDS, the vocational delivery system study. Oftentimes, the results were positive, but not statistically, they they were small, so they weren't Mm -hmm. statistically significant. So Mm -hmm. it was like, things look like they're moving in the right direction, but, you know, if you go by the old statistics book, it's like, oh, no, you have to just say this didn't work, right? So what was the reaction to those findings? I think extreme disappointment. I think that that there was a lot of disappointment. The recidivism findings really ended up coming out kind of first as we dug through the data and looked at employment and housing and substance use and all these other things. We started to find that there were actually some significant positive findings in the data, which really were more directly tied to the programming that was being provided. Mm -hmm. It didn't really get, I don't think, the traction. That's probably my fault, but didn't get really the traction that they could have gotten because with all of this, you know, I've done correctional program evaluation my entire life, adult life, it seems like. And the bottom line is people care about the recidivism results. Right. That's what they care about. Almost all they care about. That's almost all they care about. And, you know, and I mean, up to when the Second Chance Act came out, there was a requirement that these programs reduce recidivism by 50 Mm percent. We don't have anything that can do that. Right. <laughs> if we did, we wouldn't have a problem. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You talked in your essay, and you've also said this publicly, I think, that there are different kinds of services that seem to have more effect than others. Could you talk a little bit about that? So... Uh, Was that part of Savory? Was that... There's been some research, Doris McKenzie's work, that had looked at sort of what seemed to be working in, in corrections. And, and that work had suggested that programs focused on like substance abuse treatment, cognitive behavior therapy, those kinds of things, what they called individual change types of programming really are the things that have shown up in the literature. Doris's work, but a lot of other people's work too. I mean, if you're just looking at a specific program, these are the things that tend to 
be more likely to have positive findings, although, again, I mean, results overall are kind of disappointing. But we found that in the Savory evaluation that those programs did, in fact, turn out to be more likely to be predictive. People who had had those programs did turn out to Cognitive be more likely. behavioral therapy. Education. education. Case management. Case management. That's right. And sort of more practical things like help with housing or participating in a reentry program, oddly enough, turned out to be negatively associated. Christy Vischer and my hypothesis on that was that if people had invested a lot of time in a reentry program and then got out and encountered all the obstacles that people encounter when they get out, you sort of get psyched up that you're going to be successful and you've been given supposedly these tools that are going to make you gone through this program that's going to make you successful and then you're not. So it could be some disappointment, sort of almost a boomerang type effect. That makes sense. What I think I've heard you say about this, what I've read in your essay, is mostly weak findings, Mm -hmm. weak positive findings. It's not statistically significant findings for most programs. You might want to talk a little bit more about the VDS thing because that's in terms of the findings, the outcomes that you got on that because that actually came out a little bit better. But then I also want you to talk a little bit about what you saw when you extended the review out beyond the time frame that you had originally anticipated on Savori. I think it was Savori. Yeah, it? yeah, right. And so the, the vocational delivery system was the pre-reentry period project that was done in North Carolina with NIJ funding that really was a reentry program. It was in prison work and then followed by supposedly services and support post-release. And we found that was a randomized controlled trial. We found, again, positive but not significant results for individuals who participated in the program. There were differences in implementation in terms of another thing that's consistent here is with the Savori findings is the people who were in the vocational delivery system program were much more likely to get the whole range of services that were supposed to be provided. Basically, what would now be called a reentry plan. They had case managers. They had more likely to get job training and so forth than the people who were in the control group. But much fewer than 100% of the people who were in the program got these things. So you had partial implementation. And the way that the design of that study was set up, these were individuals who were in the same institution, but programming was limited. So that's why we could do a randomized control trial. Some of the people who were in the control group also got services. They got some job training. They got that. So you had a better but still partially treated treatment group and a partially treated comparison group, Mm, mm -hmm. which statistically undermines your power. It's a smaller effect size difference. So that was one lesson to be taken away from there. That was the very first study I ever did as I was writing this chapter and actually a little work that I started thinking about before writing this chapter. I went back and looked at that in comparison now with all the other work that I've done since then. And it was like, The concluding paragraph in this evaluation review article from 1992 or whatever it was could apply to any of these studies that I've completed, you know, in the last 10 years, because it's like basically because of these power related issues, you know, maybe we could live with it being significant at the 0.11 level. Mm -hmm. And I thought "Hmm, that was 1992. And, you know, and and here, you know, we see some of the, the same kind of things with the Savory evaluation we had. Only half of the people who were in Savory programs reported getting any education. And that's true across the whole range of services. You know, there were, there were I've forgotten now the number, but some significant number of people who were in the Savory programs told us 30 days before they got out that they didn't have a reentry plan. 
So that 50 or 60% or 70% or whatever it was, much higher than the 30% of the control group or whatever it was that said, oh, well, I've got a reentry plan. But again, you have this issue of partial implementation of the treatment and receipt of services for the comparison group, right? And so again, pointing to an sort of an under a methodological problem with the study. I hadn't mentioned this. It comes through in the article that I didn't specify it. The Savory evaluation was not underpowered from a sample size, right? I mean, we had 1,600 and something men in the study and 357, I think, women and 337 boys. Those are sort of borderline, but I mean, we had 1,600 men, so spread across multiple sites, but still that's a reasonable sample size. Mm-hmm. And so one of the threats to sort of the findings for a lot of studies was not an issue with Savory. Okay, so now talk a little bit about the long term and what happened over the long term. So this was really very interesting. So we got additional funding from NIJ, and this study was done. I'm, I'm at RTI International, and the Savory evaluation was done by us in partnership with Urban Institute. And Christy Fisher at the Urban Institute was the co-PI on the study. So we got additional funding from NIJ to do a more extensive follow-up administrative data follow-up. We collected, we basically had at least five years of post-release criminal information on individuals from this second round of data collection. Lo and behold, we found significant differences in arrest for both the men and the women when we looked over a five-year period. Compared to controls. Compared to the controls. There were 14% fewer arrests, a number of arrests for the men and 40-something percent fewer arrests for the women. These numbers were definitely statistically significant and and interesting. And I, I mean, it points to, in my view, another problem that we run into a lot of times with correctional program evaluation is it's not just that we really only care about recidivism. It's that any failure is it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I've used the analogy, you know, it would be what we're doing. It would be like, a, you know, an oncologist who's treating someone for cancer, you know, six months into the study, the person has a heart attack and the oncologist says, well, this chemotherapy doesn't work. Or an asthma specialist treating someone with asthma. And, you know, before treatment, you know, they're having an asthma attack every day. And post treatment, they're having an asthma attack every three months. Right. You would never say. This treatment's not working. No, you, you count that as a huge you victory. You count that as a huge victory. And and what we often have done with these sort of zero, one, any failure, any new arrest in two years, which has been kind of a standard for decades, a sort of a standard, met, or any new prison term in two years, a standard sort of, oh, that's sort of the standard for recidivism. What we've done is we've conflated you know, a whole lot of issues associated with what criminal behavior actually is into this one binary indicator that leaves us well short of really understanding, I think, what, what it is we need to understand, which is taking into account the nature, i.e. type, the seriousness, and the frequency of offending. A lot of my work has, has actually used models that look at timing and that look at counts and so forth. We haven't been able to really look at seriousness because the Mm -hmm. statistical models really aren't there. And it's hard to even know sometimes what seriousness means. Did you do any analysis that would try to unpack what was behind the 14% and the 40% reductions that you did see? Yeah. Interestingly enough, when we controlled for a whole variety of 
individual characteristics and access to a whole range of programming pre-release. Just being in the Savori program was was significantly related in a positive way to these fewer arrests. Okay, so we've controlled for they, who you are. Okay, so we're in the we're in the Savori. We've controlled for who you are. You're in the Savori program. If you were in the Savori program, in these long term outcomes, you had some improvement, significant right. improvements. Right. And we know from what you previously said that what seems to drive significant improvement are the CBT, the case management, the substance abuse treatment, these kinds of things. So is it logical then to say that that's really the element, those are the elements that we, if we want those long-term improvements that we need to be focusing on? I don't think we know. A colleague, when he saw those results, said, so you've got a lag effect with reentry programming? He says, oh, that's different. But one interpretation, and this is just a hypothesis, is that People were actually provided with things that were useful. It took a while for them to decide when they got out of prison, which is usually a very chaotic time for individuals, and you've got all kinds of demands, and it's just a very chaotic time, that it took them a while to figure out, wait a minute, I don't want to be involved in this criminal lifestyle anymore. I really want to go straight. And I learned some things Mm -hmm. when I was in prison. I got some tools when I was in prison that can help me now. And so this idea that we need to be able to think more carefully about the sequencing of of when someone's ready for treatment, and there's other chapters in the book that talk much more explicitly about this, but when people may be ready for treatment and what kinds of things might be useful then. The Savori, we asked a whole series of questions when we were doing the follow-up interviews in the the Savori, the original Savori study, that the, the three, nine, and 15-month follow-up. And we had two batteries of questions. One was the questions for individuals who were incarcerated when the follow-up interview was done. And the other was questions for individuals who weren't incarcerated. And we took that as a, obviously as a rough, but a proxy for re-engaging in criminal behavior and not. And looking at those results, which we've never published, but we've looked at a lot, but looking at those results, it was really interesting because people who were re-incarcerated, pretty much the reason they were back there was somebody else's fault. And the people who were was it actually somebody else's That's fault what or what they, they said. were saying? That's what they were saying. It's okay. somebody else's fault. It was yeah. my girlfriend. It was a parole officer. It was mm. this guy. It was that yeah. guy. You know, the people who were out on the streets were clearly at least claiming to have taken much more responsibility yeah. for their own lives. Yeah. You know, I decided I wasn't going to go back to prison. I'm doing this for my children. Right. I'm doing this for my family. I told my family I would never do this again. What was interesting, there was like, I don't know, 15, 20 different things they could pick. Included on those lists were... The typical kind of reentry services that are provided, neither group highlighted any of those things, right. which is not to say necessarily that those things didn't end up helping what we were just talking so about, but that you've got this initial step that's got to take place before these kinds of things can help. I've equated it to, you know, I mean, it's one thing to know how to get a job, how to apply to a job, but if you're going to actually get a job, you have to go want to do that, right? right. And so it, it really is this, you have to want to change. You, know? right. you have to want to quit smoking. You have to want to really be able to, to make your life different. And, and it's more than just sort of a rhetorical commitment That's to, right. I want something. That's right. We all want things. What are we willing to do to That's get right. them? There's, a, there's an right. underlying commitment to yep. change that is, it's really goes beyond just wanting because everybody in prison will say they yep. don't want to go back. You know, Christy earlier today in the briefing 
talked about the fact that nobody says they want to go back. And, and I think in the Savori, because we asked the Savori, all the Savori people, and it was like 95% who said, I'm ne- never coming back. And we know that that is not right. true. I mean, right. 90-something percent of, of these folks over that long term that we looked at were rearrested at least and once. There's lo- and there's lots of reasons for that, right? Yeah. I mean, there's the stickiness of the criminal justice system. It's hard to get out of it. Yep. You know, you're just constantly at risk of violating terms of probation or parole and and getting drawn back into the system. Yeah. There's all sorts of ways the system can actually trip people up. And there's also just, and this is why I'm so intrigued with the cognitive behavioral therapy, is that I think that there are all of these triggers that are built into people. They're not even like fully in control mm-hmm. of what's happening to them because they've only got one way of reacting to whatever the negative stimulus is. Right. Right. So they go back to taking drugs or they engage in a violent act or whatever, and anger management problems, all of that. And it just it just strikes me that those are the kinds of things that we have to work on yeah. if we want people to develop the desire to stop yeah. and then have the tools to stop, you know, different ways of engaging. Yeah. The world. I, I mean, you need to almost think about criminal behavior and recidivism and in terms of a rel- relapsing behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And. If someone, you know, goes from drinking too much every night to drinking too much one night a week, that's an improvement, right? Sure. And if someone goes from being involved in all kinds of criminal activity on a regular basis to slipping up and doing something bad. Now, the problem with our system, of course, is with so much of this, I mean, we don't really have three strikes and you're out anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people with priors can really get hammered. And so you might go five years before that next offense, but now you've you've already been incarcerated twice, and now you're going to get it 25 years, even though it was five years. And so how we use what you were alluding to, the $60 billion worth of correctional investment that this country makes every year, if you want to call it an investment, yeah. how that money is spent, it really is something we need to, to look at as society and say, is this really how we want to spend this money? Okay, so to sort of move us toward wrapping this up, what are your conclusions based on this research? What are the things that we really need to pay attention to if we're going to improve reentry outcomes for incarcerated persons who are coming home? I think I would start at the bottom of my list and because I think it encompasses everything. I mean, I think we need more patience. You know, we were talking about three-year grants before. That's not long enough. Not long enough, certainly, to implement something and do any kind of rigorous evaluation of it. We need to think about the methodological limitations of the designs that yeah. we're using. Yeah, causation's and hard to prove. It's really the causation hard. is really hard to prove. And I think that as social scientists that we have not been properly attuned to how our language can be interpreted by policymakers in particular, but practitioners as well. So you get a lot of baby tossing with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. That probably is not it's certainly never been my intent, but that leads people to think, well, okay, that didn't work. Another comparison point here is that in medicine, the new treatment only has to be as good as existing practice, right? To say, yeah, we can implement this. And in some ways, we've applied a much more, not in some, in a way, I mean, we have applied a much more rigorous standard to these social interventions, these behavioral interventions that we're trying to implement. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, you started out by talking about yeah. patience, right? Yeah. So patience, you were talking about it at the beginning, about patience and, and stability in policy right. to allow enough time, right? Right. So that, and then there's patience with the actual people, 
right. that we're talking about, That's right. right? Like That's right. these, these Give are complex, right? They people time to succeed. Yeah, they they've yeah. got complicated problems, yeah. and if we do exercise a little more patience and forbearance, and have alternatives <laughs> to throwing them back into incarceration, that that might be of value too. But this idea of just be patient in the policy and in the programs and with the people. Pam, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I always enjoy sitting down and talking with yeah. you. As I said, the ideas that Pam has been discussing are fleshed out in considerable detail in our volume, Rethinking Reentry. I encourage you to go online and order a copy or download it and rethink a little bit for yourselves. So thanks again, Pam, for being with us. Thank you so much. This was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>